uh, as most of you know, there are a lot of traditions that surround this thing called Advent. The word Advent, of course, means coming. Uh, it's referring to the coming of Jesus. And maybe you were raised Catholic, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Pentecostal, Charismatic, crazy, I don't know, however you were raised, in this big umbrella called Christendom, there are a lot of different traditions. Every year, somebody will tell me that the way that we practice Advent as a church is different from how it should be done. And uh, that was funny to somebody. That was great. <laughs> and I always respectfully tell them it's different from what you know. It's not different from how it should be done. I mean, if there was a Bible verse on how to do Advent, nobody would have a difference on this. But some people, when they have grown up and or they practice Advent, they, they really do look at it as a journey to Bethlehem. So they have calendars and, and perhaps they even have little chocolates at the end of the road, <laughs> Christian paraphernalia and <laughs> fuels Amazon. So there's a lot, there's a lot of things that uh, we do and people will say, oh, it's a journey to Bethlehem. So each and every day there's, there's something along the stop and, and, and they wanna invite their families into that. And then at Christmas, on Christmas day, they read the story of Jesus, Luke chapter two, or perhaps the, beginning of Matthew. Others, what they'll do is that they will ask the Lord and use resources to get their hearts into the anticipation that we read about in the Jewish people in longing for their Messiah, their Messiah and King who was to come to them. That's what they want to do. And, and there are also ways that we do this with lighting candles. And as you know, we do that here. We light candles because we celebrate four weeks up until Christmas, and those four weeks represent an aspect of what the coming of Jesus brought into our world, and for those that believe, brought into our hearts and our lives. And so we light these candles as representations of those four things. But why a candle and why a light? Well, Jesus said about himself that he is, he said, I am the light of the world. And the implication is this, is that if there is no light, then what we have is darkness. When Jesus came, he was the light into our world of, of peace and hope and joy and love. And so we are declaring that together as, as a church, as a family, and we're saying, if Jesus didn't come, then these are only concepts. They're not realities. We cannot know and we cannot have these things without the coming of Jesus. And so it is right for us to celebrate. And whether we light candles or, or whatever we do, um, Advent is very powerful and it's very, uh, it's very important. And so we like to light candles. And um, yes, there are some candles, guys, that are uh, pink and purple. Today we light the candle of love. Um, and there are some traditions, that the candles have to all be white. Some traditions, the, actually the most ancient that I've read, all the candles have to be red and only one candle can be white and that's the Christ candle. So in case you thought your tradition was right. <laughs> someone else would disagree with you. I wanna to talk to you about the advent of, of love today. And so we find this here in 1 John chapter four, a really clear focus of the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ, but a little context about 1 John. 
First John was written, of course, by the Apostle John, the beloved of the Lord. He was one of the closest companions. We find Peter, James, and John. They were invited in to see things alongside Jesus that many others were not invited into. And of course, John wrote, some would say, 20% of the New Testament. Now, he didn't write all as many letters as Paul, but he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. If you take all of the volume of his words, it's about 20% of the words of the New Testament. Yes, Paul wrote 13 letters, but John wrote a lot of words, and he was an eyewitness to the ministry and the life of Jesus, and we very much need what he, what he wrote. When we get to 1st John, One of the primary reasons that he wrote this letter to scattered believers, he even put some coding in there so that it could go under the radar of some who might catch this and and not know who it was for or what it was about. He's writing to refute false teaching and false teachers because in the first century, there were a a lot of false teachers. There There was a lot of false teaching. A lot of scholars say he's probably in the beginning stage of Gnosticism, or different branches of Gnosticism, and he's addressing a ton of things. And most apostles that wrote a letter, most of the New Testament letters or gospel accounts, actually do refute some form of false teaching. That's how prevalent it was. John here reaffirms beautiful truths of the gospel. He talks about the incarnation of Christ. God became man and dwelt among us. The crucifixion, the atonement Jesus' forgiveness of our sins, the resurrection. And in 1 John, he also focuses on the evidence of true believers that actually adhere to the true gospel. He wants to make that quite clear. In fact, I've read 1 John a number of times when I was a young believer. I used to feel really guilty reading 1 John because he says all of these very specific things like, if you are a Christian, then this is what you do and this is what you won't do. And I would always read that going, like, I've got a little sin in my life. And it's scary to consider the implications. And, but what I realize is that when you consider the backdrop, John's talking to believers who have put their heart and their life into the hands of Christ. But all these false teaching that's leading towards legalism and secrets that people must not have, that the true gospel, the real, the simple gospel somehow didn't declare to them. It's like, you're missing something. That was the, some of the Gnostic teaching. There are these secret things that, that they would convey. And somehow people would have this sense of like something's wrong or missing. And so John makes it really clear. No, 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 guys, listen, true believers actually do love people. True believers stop sinning. True believers, do. he's not saying they never struggle with sin. He's just saying, this is what comes out of their life. So if you're around people that say one thing and their heart is completely different, there's evidence of a true believer is, is really what he's saying. They want to follow Jesus. They long to, they desire to follow Jesus. And so I, I want to read to you verses 7 through 14 here, 1 John chapter 4. And we'll just jump right in. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. I mean, is that not clear? Everyone who is born of God, uh, everyone who loves other people is born of God and knows God. I mean, that's just simple. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, some translations say atoning sacrifice, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Christmas story is found right in here for sure. A couple points. The first one is this. John is saying, God is the source of love. In verse 8 and another verse, which is verse 16, we did not read, he actually just, he just says it. God is love. And it's the third of three expressions that John tells us about the essence of God. Not just an attribute, but the essence of God. The first one we find in 1 John 1, he says, God is light. When he says this, he's talking about the holy nature of God. It contrasts light and darkness, good and evil. God is light, totally, completely pure. There's no shadow in him. There's no darkness in him. The second is God is spirit, John 4, 24. This means he's not flesh and blood, and he's not limited like we are to time, space, and matter. He's above all things. He's greater than all things. God is spirit. And the third, of course, here is in John, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. The Greek word we know many of us have been taught, it's agape. There there are three primary words in the New Testament, Greek words, that we translate into love. There's there's at least five Greek words, though. Some of them are not used in the New Testament that are used to translate into the word that we have as love. 116 times the word agape is in the New Testament. And it's usually, almost always, referring to God's love for us. It's unconditional, it's overwhelming, it's, it's, it's entirely different then. In their culture, whenever this word was used, this is beyond even scripture and that, scripture literature, the word agape would usually mean charity, of a kind that you could see. It was evidenced by the way people lived toward each other. So when that word was used, it was like agape was, I'm giving towards, I'm thinking about another person, I'm putting them before myself, they're greater than me. It was something you could see evidenced in in their life. That was agape to them. It wasn't just affectionate love. Like I love my family, The, the paternal love or the familial love, that was phileo. That was another kind of love to them. They used that word as well. But this was even greater than. It was something that was distinct, and it's used all over the Bible. It's a deliberate choice for another's highest good demonstrated in clear and intentional action. This is where we cannot say, well, I love them, but nothing in our life shows it. That's not agape. We're used to that in culture. We say, I love them, I love this, I love that. But the fact is, it's not what we're talking about here, considering God's love toward us. So when John says God is love, he means that it is more than an attribute or an action. God is love. It's his essence. It's what emanates from God. It's his substance. He defines it. It's, It's of God. And so anything in this life that human beings experience that we call love is ultimately found in God. However, we will never experience love's fullest intention if we are not found in God. You might ask the question, well, Ben, can people who don't believe in Jesus, can they experience love? Can they give love? Yes, of course they can. But they will never experience the fullness of what love actually is if they're not in God because love is God, and God or God is love. 
And so love is found in him. Love is fully experienced in him. It's his intention. It's it's of him. It's what emanates um, from him. So if we don't know him, if we don't have him, if we're not following him, whatever we're experiencing that we call love is only in part. It's only in part. And there's so much more for, for us to experience. So John's making this point very clear. Just as the sun is bright and water is wet, so God is love. And love is inseparable in everything that he says and does. Now, what does that mean for us? When you read the Old Testament or history and we see that God said something or he did a thing that we don't understand, or perhaps we don't know what's going on in our life or where is the presence of God, the activity of God, and we just simply don't understand. Here's what we know. Everything that God says and everything that God does intrinsically is loving. Does that make sense to us all the time? No, no, because we have our own versions of it. We have our own way of thinking about it, but we're finite. God is far above all of that. And so this is why, of course, last week I talked to you about trust. There's a point at which we have to trust God because we're not God. We're not going to understand everything that God does, but John declares to us that God is love. It's his essence. Number two is God revealed his love to us, of course, in, in Jesus Christ. Verse nine says, by this the love of God was manifested in us or revealed to us that God sent his one and only or begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. He's talking about in this, like this is how we will understand the full love of God. This is, this is the thing that will define love in, in its fullest extent to us. In this is love that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the Christmas message right here, the radical love of God towards us in Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate today. That's what we celebrate seven sleeps from now. He showed love by sending Jesus into our world Isaiah chapter nine and verse six says it, says it a little bit differently, prophesies this event that's going to take place that John is reflecting back on. Isaiah says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah prophesies and he says, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. This is God's intervention in our world, the world that we've made and walking away from God. This is what God will do. This is God's love toward us. This is God's intention. Even though we walked away, God was preparing a way, and his name is Jesus. The incarnation, God became man and dwelt among us. The question that we should ask and we must answer is why did God send Jesus and why does that show or reveal the totality of his love for us? Why did God send Jesus? And he says it right there. It's because we needed an atoning sacrifice. Every human being 
since our original parents, Adam and Eve, is born with sin. And sin is such a problem that there needed to be a solution. And men and women could not solve the problem. We tried. God gave us a law and we couldn't abide by it. We couldn't follow it. Even though we tried, we could not do it. The righteous requirements, the way that God created us. The Bible says in Romans that all have fallen short of the glory of God. I know it's cute today. Some people will say, well, everybody is, is, is a pretty good person. You know, there's this idea that like people are pretty good people. People are not pretty good people if the creator says, you're not what I made you. That doesn't equal pretty good people. And it doesn't mean that everybody's the worst scum of the earth. What it does mean is that we are not what God originally made us. We do not live that way. We, don't lo- we do not love that way. We don't think that way. We might think that we think that way, but we really don't think that way. I can't say that again. I don't even know what I said. <laughs> We're not what God made. In fact, Paul says it really clearly that your righteousness, your best moment of your best day of your best year is filthy rags before God. What a confrontational message that is to the lukewarm person that says, I'm a pretty good person. (laughs) Compared to who? Your designer, your creator says, you're not what I made you. But even though that is the case, I have an answer. I have an answer. And that answer isn't going to come from you doing a better job and trying harder and working for it. The answer is going to come from my own son. I'm going to send my son who's going to take care of the problem. You need forgiveness. You need cleansing. You need purification. You need someone to stand in your place. And I've got the solution. And I'm going to show you what love really is. And if you really want me and you really want to walk in what I made you for, I'll make the way. God's excited about this. You guys got to smile too. Come on, easy. I'll make the way. I I will intervene. I'll send my son in his life, his perfect life, his death on your behalf, his resurrection to prove that he is my son. The simple gospel of Jesus Christ should never get old. It's what saves our soul. It's what forgives our sin. It's what sends us to heaven. This is the love of God, that we could be restored, that we could have a relationship with God again, that God didn't just wipe his hands with us, even though he could have. He could have. God said, walk with me and go this way. And we said, nope, I'm doing my own thing. That's what we did. Wondering where the love of God is. You walk farther away from it, you're going to wonder where it is. But God intervened and sent Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. We sit here today and nobody is here rejoicing or boasting in their goodness and their righteousness. All we're doing is boasting in filthy rags. What we boast in is the work of Jesus. We boast in the fact that God would send him. This miraculous thing that has been done for us brings back an awe and a wonder. God, why would you do this? I'm not going to spend too much time with the why. I'm going to receive it enter into it. Thank God for it. People hear sometimes that God loves them. They may think this means that he's content with the way that they are. They say things like, only God can judge me, and God loves me, and love wins, man, and love is love. And, and, uh, but here's the thing. God is love, but love, our version of love is not God. We have a very distorted view of love, I believe, And God is no more content with our thoughts, actions, and attitudes than we are with our kids when they fall off the path and they go astray. How frustrated are you with your kids and your young people when they go down these roads and they destroy themselves and the lives of others? You're not content with that. 
Now, do you still love them? Can I, can I get a yes? Do you still love your kids? Yeah, you love your kids. Do you want to intervene in their life? Yes, you want to control them at every point that you can. <laughs> but you can't. And although God could, he doesn't. God could, but he doesn't. He still gives us choices. But he made a choice. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to do everything in my power, everything that I can in order to bring you back. But you still get to choose that. That's, that's the gospel. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Problem with Pain, to help kind of further explain sometimes when we have a little bit of a distortion of the love of God. He said, we were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that, but that God may love us, that we might become objects in which the divine love may rest well-pleased. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. What we would here and now call our happiness is not the end God chiefly has in view, but when we are such as he can love without impediment, we shall in fact be happy. He wrote that a long time ago. It's language that we don't use all the time. Ben, what is he saying? I don't know what he means. The essence of what he's talking about is that people tend to look at God through the lens of his, look at God's love through the lens of what I get, how he answers me, how he responds to the things in my life, the temporary things. If God loved me, then why? If God loved me, then this would happen. That's what children do. If you really loved me, then you would buy this here at the store. And we're like, you don't need a five-pound gummy bear. <laughs> Nobody needs a five-pound. But if you loved me, you would do this. Because we filter our version of love through what we get. Not through who he is and what he knows and what he's already given. We tend to do that. And so C.S. Lewis is saying, you cannot do that to God because what he's done is so much greater what Jesus has done for us is so much bigger. And we tend to look at things down here and go, oh, where is God's love? Where is his love? His love is found in Christ reconciling the world. His love, God's great love for us, will always be best and most understood through that work. If we never get another thing in our life, if we never get a prayer answered, if our bodies don't get healed and we struggle financially for the rest of our earthly existence, we still have the overwhelming radical love of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is not enough, it will never be enough. To ask where is God's love? The answer, the only answer, the best answer, is God's love is found in Jesus Christ. To not accept that is to not receive that. That is God's love. We have a really big problem called sin. It's not a minor problem. I know some people think of it as a, as a minor problem. And so we preach, of course, the gospel. We preach repentance. It doesn't sell well, amen. It doesn't get a smile on everyone's face, but it is the greatest gift. This is why John gives three reasons here about God's love revealed to us. He says that we might live through him, that we might be forgiven of our sins, and that we might spread his love to others. 
The center of the gospel message is not man's love for God. It's God's love for us. That's the gospel. The third thing I want to talk to you about here is God calls us to love like Jesus. Three points on this. The first is we must first receive God's love for us. It's not enough to know about it. We have to receive it. Look what he says here in 1 John 4.10, but I'm going to read to you the Message Bible, perhaps the only time that I'll ever read the Message Bible from this stage. And if you know me well enough, you know there are translations that I will not ever read. Moving on. This is the kind of love that we are talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. To clear away our sins and the damage that has been incurred with our relationship with God. And that's to me what the Advent season reminds me of is not what I get to do for God or the traditions that I celebrate or the fun things that we get to do. It's what God did for me. That's what it reminds me of. That without him doing what he did, I would not be who I am. That's the love of God. And I love Advent for this, for this reason. And I would tell you today that maybe everyone else failed you. Maybe everyone else has not loved you. Maybe it is today that you have never felt love in your life. And I want to tell you, no matter who has failed you or who you have around you or what is happening to you, the love of God is yours in Jesus Christ. And it is full and it is as complete as it's ever going to be. You might not feel it, but your feelings are betraying you. Because God's love is right here, right now for every person that would what? That would just simply receive it. He doesn't discriminate. We do, he does not. God is not like that. Nearly every religion teaches that God's love, whatever version of God they have, God's love and his acceptance is linked somehow to their worthiness. Almost every religion in the world teaches some form of this. And so the, the, the proportionality of his love is based on our performance. If we do good, we receive more of God's smile and affection. It's earning and that is not how Christianity is conveyed. It is not what the gospel teaches. In fact, it's just the, the opposite. Several years ago, many years ago, I don't know, I don't actually remember when, but I was going to attend a kid's camp. And I love kid's camps and youth camps. They're uh, beautiful chaos. <laughs> At this kid's camp, it was like 450 third, fourth, fifth, no, fourth, fifth, sixth graders, 450. Everybody say, ouch, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of kids. 450 kids, 200 leaders, huge camp, big auditorium. It was like a huge metal building, right? Um, kind of like a big, big barn, huge facility, terrible sound, the whole deal. So, but we love camp and I watch how God radically changes young people's lives even if it's temporary, even if it's for a moment, there's something that happens, seeds that are planted. I, I love camp for that reason, soft sell for camp. But I, I wasn't a part of it, but I got to go to it. And I can remember at this specific camp for these elementary kids, the leaders invited an older pastor who had just retired from his senior pastorate that he had for like 40 years. So he's in his 70s. And the majority of the time you will find in camps like this 
they will never invite an older pastor. Now, if you're in your 60s and 70s, I mean no offense, I'm just speaking honestly, is that he was a solid teacher of God's word, but not some dynamic preacher who's going to keep the attention of fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. At least that's what I could feel in the leaders that invited him. There was almost like this, should we have done this? Maybe this wasn't the right speaker. And those are not always bad thoughts, but sometimes they are very dumb, very dumb thoughts. The man talked for five nights about the love of God. 25, 20-minute messages about the love of God. The, The messages, I remember them. They were simple. They were concise. They were clear. They could be understood by a child. We all had heard it before. It's one of those things where I've heard that before. And, but something he did that I had never seen before, and I will never forget, is he did this. He had his Bible, and he was sharing the message. He never used notes, which was, made me kind of feel like I should quit. But anyways, he, <laughs> he kept walking up and down the aisles, and he was talking to the kids, and he would stop. And he would look at the kids, and he'd say, God loves you. And it was awkward. <laughs> At first, it was really awkward. He kept doing that. He kept walking up and down. And the leaders were like going up. Was he? It was kind of cool. But then he, I remember he got up to one kid, probably a fifth grade kid. He looks at this boy in the face and he said, young man, do you know that God loves you? And the boy didn't say anything. Within seconds, though, he started to cry. He just started to cry. And I'm not sure if you know, when I use the word anointing, if what, you know what I'm talking about, but the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit was so strong, all of these kids started to cry. Some started to weep. They just started to weep. And you could feel, and I, and I, and I don't live on feelings, but you could feel the tangible love of God ministering to the hearts of kids, even to the hearts of us big kids. This man who had spent his whole life in ministry preached this book faithfully, book by book, chapter by chapter. Most people thought he wasn't going to be dynamic. He couldn't hold the attention of the kids because they're fidgety and they're itchy and they're hopped up on candy and that's all our fault. (laughs) But when he looked at a fifth grade boy and said, young man, do you know that God loves you? He melted. That's all it took. And here we are. Sometimes we hear that. We, we hear God loves me. And you're like, oh, Pastor Ben, I know. Uh, you know preach the deep stuff. <laughs> you know, what does the Greek say? Let's break down agape, you know. But we might not really, we might not really know. Like experientially, no. Like maybe it's not deep down in your soul. God loves me. And so if you haven't heard it for a while or you haven't said it to someone else for a while, let me say it to you and look you in the face today. God loves you. Don't look away. Don't do that when someone gives you a compliment like, oh, you know. know." (laughs) Don't, don't, don't. Take it. God loves you. He loves you more than anybody will ever love you. And he doesn't love you because you had a good day. He doesn't love you because you're religiously better than the person next to you. God loves you. And he wants you to hear it. He wants you to see it. Perhaps he even wants you to feel it. He wants you to feel 
his love. The guy gave this very obscure, unclear altar call, (laughs) but it did not matter. Kids came up and they got down on their knees. Nobody told them to, and they were weeping and they were experiencing the love of God that is only found truly like this in Jesus Christ, giving their hearts to the Lord. I can't remember if anybody said, give your hearts to Jesus or not, but they did. That was night one. That was night one. I watched the pure message of God's love touch the hearts of children with childlike faith. The problem we often have is that we confuse and distort this pure love seen through the gospel, and we get confused and we get conflicted about God's love based on the circumstances of life. And we know we shouldn't do that, and we're not supposed to do that, but we all do it. We all get confused about God's love, his pure, undefiled love towards us in Christ. We get confused about it because of how life has panned out or the things that happen or the accumulation of what's on the inside of us. Especially when you're a Christian a long time, you have this overwhelming feeling like I should be different and I should be better. And if I really knew God and if I really knew his love, wouldn't I be that much more different And I want to remind you of what you found out to be true when you received the gospel to begin with. If you want to be more like him, you have to receive more of him. He doesn't sell the gospel to you and then you get forgiveness for when you sin, heaven when you die, and figure out the rest on your own. That's not the deal. The deal is you walk with God and he loves you through every season and in every circumstance and he reveals himself more and more and more so we can receive more and more and more and he transforms us into the likeness of his son so that we can be more like Jesus. You can't try to do this. You have to receive more of, of, God's, of God's love. But we confuse it, don't we? We confuse it all the time. I read this uh, funny little story and I thought it was important because this is what we do. This is what people do. And some walk away from Christ because they think, well, if God is love and he's loving and he's loving me right now, what about loss and pain and betrayal and sickness and my health and the abuse that I've experienced and the people that said they were Christians who turned out to be anything but Christ? What about all that? Where's the love of God in in all of that? And I was reading a story. I'm going to share it with you. A young man went to a barber shop to uh, to get his hair cut. As the barber was working on him and cutting his hair, they had a good conversation. They talked about all kinds of things. And eventually they touched on the subject of God. And the barber said to the young man, I don't believe that God exists. And he said, why do you say that? Well, you just have to go out into the street and see that God doesn't exist. If God does exist, why is there so many sick people and abandoned children and suffering and pain? I I can't imagine a loving God who would allow all of these things. The customer thought about it for a moment but didn't respond because he didn't want to start an argument while he's cutting his hair. (laughs) The barber finished the job and the customer left the shop without saying anything. Just after he left the barber shop, he saw a man in the street with long, dingy, dirty hair and a wild, untrimmed beard. He looked dirty and very unkept. The customer turned back and walked into the barber shop again, and he said to the barber, you know what? Barbers don't exist. And the man says, how can you say that? That's ridiculous. I'm here. I'm the barber. I just cut your hair, man. 
No, the customer exclaimed. Barbers don't exist because if they did, there would be no people with dirty long hair and untrimmed beards like this man outside. Ah, <laughs> oh, but barbers do exist. That's what happens when people don't come to me. Exactly, affirmed the customer. The young man said, that's the point. God does exist. And that's what happens when people do not go to him and don't look to him for help. That's why there's so much pain and suffering in the world. Pain and suffering exists. Difficulty exists. The issue is we don't receive God's love that's available for us. That's the point. If God existed, why then all this stuff? Here's the thing. God does exist, here's Jesus, and if Jesus is real, and if the message of the gospel is true, why not receive? That's what changes everything, and, that, and that's the point. And so we cannot merely look for God's love in response towards temporary situations when what he's done has eternal consequence. It's greater and bigger than. And you cannot assume this love. I wanna say this to you today, no matter where you're at with the Lord, if you don't know Christ, maybe some of us don't, or we're watching today, if you don't know Christ, like really, if you don't know him. And I would tell you this, you know that you don't know him if in your heart you don't want him or you're not sure about him. Like there's, it has to be inside of us. I love God. It has to be in here. God puts it in you. If it's not in you, if you want other things and not God, it means that you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you can't be a Christian. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want you. It means that we need to surrender our hearts to him. We have to receive Christ. I don't want to put some guilt on you. I just simply want to say, if it's not in here, you don't have it at all, but you can. You say, Ben, is it really complicated? Is there some religious scaffolding or ladder that I got to climb? It's not. You know what it is? It's the human will. As stubborn as we are, I don't want you to look at anybody right now. You're all looking at me. Why are you doing that? <laughs> We're stubborn to give our lives to someone else. We want to take back our life. I want my life. I want to live my, li my life to do my thing. That's what we think. That's what people think. But God is like, you don't even know what life is until you surrender yourself to me. Then you'll find life. That's what Jesus teaches us. But you cannot assume this love. We cannot walk around and say, God loves me. He just loves me. Everything about me, God just loves me. I'm his favorite. God loves us in Christ, but we have to receive that love. That's just the same thing about forgiveness. You can forgive someone, but you can't have reconciliation unless that forgiveness is received. God loves us, but that love has to be received. Then relationship can be born. That's what it's about in the gospel. So if you haven't done that, you should do that. I encourage you to do that. Not should, you must, you have to, but like this is what life is about and God calls us to it. The second is we must cultivate our love for God. There's this story in Luke 7 where Jesus is invited to eat dinner in the house of a religious leader. And I'll just summarize the story. During the meal, a woman comes to him with a bottle of expensive perfume and she starts pouring it out on his feet and wiping with her hair and it says that she's wetting his feet with her tears and kissing his feet. It's this crazy picture at the Pharisee's home and the Pharisees are getting angry. Like, what is this woman doing and why is Jesus allowing this kind of woman to do this? It's crazy. In the midst of all, all that and them even vocalizing it, Jesus tells them a story. At the end of the story, he tells them the truth. And this was his principle, Luke 9:47. He says, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. 
and this is why she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. The principle is simple. Those that have been forgiven much love much. Those that have been forgiven of little love little. His point was, do you see what she's doing? She can't help herself but respond to what she's received. This is why some people are radical in their love for God. You can't help it. It isn't some proof. It isn't, I'm a better person than you, or I'm more religious, religiously zealous than the other. There's just, when something gets a hold of you on the inside, you can't help yourself. That's what worship and serving and giving, she's doing all of that, isn't she? She's worshiping Jesus. She's serving him. She's giving her perfume, everything she has. I'm willing to give it all to him because I don't know what else to do. This is what cultivating our love for God looks like. It isn't doing something to prove anything to him. It's responding to what he's already done. That's what John says. It's not that we have loved God. It's that God loved us. Now, how do we live in response to that? It's natural. It's organic. It comes out of us. And God wants to renew it in every season of our life. I want to renew your love for me by having you receive more of what I've done, a greater revelation of Jesus. What would happen if you just woke up every day and said, reveal to me the beauty of Jesus? God, would you do? Reveal the beauty of Jesus. Help me not take it for granted. Help me not act like it's something too simple that I shouldn't have to hear all the time, but renew that in my heart. Reveal that to my mind. Don't allow me to confuse it, but get more of it. I, I want to see Jesus as he is. And I'll bet you, if you just pray a prayer like that, you will not have a problem with loving on Jesus. It just will come out of you. What you'll have a problem with is people around you that will get uncomfortable because you're that person. <laughs> you just make me uncomfortable the way you love Jesus so much. It irritates us, and it should. Rightly so. Number three, and finally, we must love others practically and specifically. I want to bring you back to verse seven. This is where John says, and he starts off by saying, beloved, love one another for love is from God. And then of course he points out love is God, God is love. John's saying, put others first, consider them better than yourselves because that's what God is like. And that's what Jesus showed us. He means care for people, cover them, protect them, de deal fairly with them and honestly with them, honor, speak well of, be kind to, give towards, be generous with, reconcile, do this. This is what God is like and this is who you claim to know. Love others for love is from, is from God. And there are opportunities around us all the time um, to love God. But if you have a love problem toward other people, I would, I would tell you that it just comes back to receiving. If, 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 I, if I want, if you, brother, if you were thirsty and, and I wanted to give you water and all I had was a cup, that was one, you know, but I don't have any water, I need someone to pour into that cup so that I can give you something to drink. I can give you a cup. So if I have a problem with what I have to give to other people, I need someone, I need God to pour into me so that I have something to give away. If you've got a love problem, friends, it's really a receiving problem. We have to receive from God as Christians, not just that we did once, but that we do all the time. Lord, show me Jesus. Help me to understand what I have in you so that I can give it away to others. It's in, inside of us. It's by the Holy Spirit. It's not just us trying harder. And we so want that to be the case, but it's not. It's not how it works. This is why Jesus would teach, abide in me and I in you. Remain in me. You'll ask whatever you want, and it'll be done for you. 
People are always trying to get these formulas, the five easy ways to become a good Christian. Those books sell, but they don't work. Loving others practically and specifically comes out of who we are in Christ. So do you love people? Let me ask you, do you love people? Do you love people well? Would other people say that about you? Oh, Pastor Ben, it's Christmas. What are you trying to do here? No, I'm just reading. Verse, Brethren, love one another for love is from God. And then he preaches the gospel. You got a love problem? It's all found in Jesus. It's not feel bad, try hard. You got a love problem? It's all found in Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Every time you feel religious guilt, come back to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I, I want to see you. I want to walk with you. I want to be like you. I want to know you. God smiles on that. The father always says about his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it, we, the pleasure of God is released over our life when we reveal Christ and we allow Christ to live through our life. That's the river that we want flowing out of us. God's well pleased with Christ in us, living through us. That's what we want. In conclusion, I, uh, I just want to say this. Um, I was thinking about how John wrote this letter and the gospel of John. And of course, he was very close to Jesus. And you might remember this about John. John was a fisherman, and he was with his brother and a couple other disciples called out of the fisherman business with their father, whose name was Zebedee. It's a great name, Zebedee. They were called out of the fisherman business. Fishermen were tough. They had to deal with all the poor taxes. They had to come up against the, uh, really the oppress, uh, oppression of taxation. They dealt with all kinds of external circumstances where they couldn't get a catch of the day. They were tough people. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus gave John and James the nickname, the sons of thunder. You don't remember John this way. If you read the Bible, you don't think of John as the son of thunder the passionate one, the overzealous one, the one that when the Samaritans didn't receive the gospel, he was like, Jesus, let's call fire down from heaven on these guys. I think that's the solution. It just doesn't sound very loving. We don't remember John this way, do we, at all? We don't think of John as the son of thunder until Pastor Ben brings it up or you come across it in the Bible and then we go, oh yeah, he, he really was different. He really must have been something that Jesus would nickname him this. Wow, what kind of a man was he? Five times in the Gospel of John, Jesus, or John says about himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Five times. I don't know how his brethren thought about that, but he claimed about himself five times the disciple whom Jesus loved. He knew this about his life. He knew Jesus loved him. He knew it. He knew it so much that he didn't have a problem writing it. The disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't even put his name John in there. He just put that, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's, that's me, guys. That's me. I'm his favorite. <laughs> but think about it. To be in that place, to know this, to really, to really know it. And, and John came a long way from the son of thunder. And there's this story. A fourth century theologian, Jerome, tells a historical account um, some say it's not substantiated, but it's, it's a pretty cool story anyways. It says that in, when John was in his old age and he was frail and he couldn't walk anymore, his disciples would carry him into church gatherings on the Lord's Day every, every single week. And every week when they brought him out, he would say the same thing. And here's what he'd say, little children love one another. 
they grew weary of these words and phrases because it's pretty much all he would say. No teaching, just little children love one another. So they asked him, why do you always say this to us? And he replied, it's the Lord's command. And if this is the only thing that you do, it is surely enough. The one that's preaching to us today about love, he was transformed by love, wasn't he? Son of thunder to the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's our transformation. Whatever we were to the one that Jesus loves, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. That's what he wants us to know this morning. Would you stand to your feet? The coming of Jesus brings love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you sent your son, that you came for us, that you gave your life for us, and we reflect on that, but we receive that today. We receive that today. I receive your love. It's not a concept or an idea. It's a reality that was demonstrated many years ago, and it still changes our lives today. I pray for us as a church that the coming of Jesus, the anticipation of what is yet to happen, would fill our hearts even now. It would overtake us, it would overwhelm us, and we would rejoice in what has been done for us. And we declare as a people that you love us. You do. And nothing changes that. Thank you, and we receive it. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen and amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening today. Pastor Ben's mission is to equip the church to impact the world. If you want to get connected, check the show notes and visit bendixon.org. From there, you can learn about Pastor Ben's other podcasts, the books he has written, Ignite Global Ministries, and the online Immersion Discipleship School. Thank you.